This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. To support the work we're doing, please visit the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from All In with Chris Hayes, Democracy Now!, The Rachel Maddow Show, The Young Turks, and On the Media. If you listen to Donald Trump or conservative talk radio or even the county sheriff we had on this program last night, you might think this country is being absolutely overrun by immigrants, most of them from Mexico, bringing drugs and crimes along with them. And this anti-immigrant hysteria is not particularly well-grounded, and it also seems particularly ridiculous at a time when Europe is facing its biggest migrant and refugee crisis since World War II. Hundreds of thousands of people this year have fled war and poverty in the Middle East and Africa, many seeking to escape the ongoing horror of civil war in Syria. Migrants and refugees are now filling up camps across Europe, while the death toll continues to climb. Authorities today removing the bodies of 71 people from the back of a truck found abandoned on a highway in Austria. Syrian travel documents were found among the dead, which included four children, the youngest, a two-year-old girl. At least four people have been arrested, believed to be members of a human smuggling ring. Across the Mediterranean, the bodies of as many as 150 people were brought ashore after a boat capsized off the coast of Libya. At least 2,500 people have died at sea this year alone, making the desperate journey to Europe. And that does not include the victims of this latest tragedy. This man and his daughter fleeing the war in Syria survived the journey and are being held at a detention center. They call it the route of death. We're forced to take it, this Syrian man says. Now we call it the grave of the Mediterranean. Think about the situation you would be in if you undertook that journey with your child. German Chancellor Angela Merkel noting the situation is a bigger test for the European Union than the Greek financial meltdown. But the response from European nations has been mixed. While countries like Sweden and Germany are taking migrants and refugees in, others are building them out. Hungary is constructing a Donald Trump-style wall along its border with Serbia, a response that some believe will only aid the smugglers. As one migration agency official told the New York Times today, that kind of policy looks tough, looks proactive. It looks as if you're taking people's complaints seriously, that there are too many migrants. It doesn't work. Which brings us back to this country, where just last summer, we were watching thousands of young children and families and mothers with infants and toddlers crossing our southern border, peaceably turning themselves in, fleeing some of the most absolutely horrifying violence seen in Central America in decades. And our political system, what did it do? It absolutely lost its mind. It makes me feel a deep unease to contemplate what our political system would do in the face of the kind of moral crisis Europe is facing right now. If hundreds of thousands of people fleeing unimaginable circumstances came to our borders looking for safety and security and compassion, would the better angels of our nature rise to the occasion?
joined by Kenneth Roth here in New York, Executive Director of Human Rights Watch. Um, you've put out numerous reports on the situation of people who are migrating uh, as a result of conflict, persecution, hunger, all the different reasons they do. What do you think has to happen now, Ken? Well, Amy, let me first put this in perspective, because, you know, we're talking about a crisis, and yes, you know, 310, 320,000 people are a lot of people. But Europe's population as a whole is about 500 million. So what we're talking about, the number of people who've come this year is less than 0.1% of Europe's population. Now compare that to the United States, where undocumented people in this country are about 11 million. Um, that's about 3.5% of the U.S. population. So in other words, the U.S. population has completely integrated massive more people. Um, a much larger percentage than Europe is facing. Indeed, the U.S. has built an economy around these people, um, so it will be difficult to send them back. We're having a debate now about a path to citizenship, but realistically, um, these people are here to stay, and the U.S. has just incorporated them. So this is not really a crisis. Um, Europe is perfectly able to manage integrating 0.1% of its population. Um, the problem is it doesn't want to. At least some people don't want to. We've seen real leadership. You saw the French Foreign Minister, Laurent Fabius, saying very powerfully, speaking for the need to welcome these people. Angela Merkel, the German Chancellor, has also been very outspoken in this regard. So we are seeing some leadership in Europe, but the right wing in particular is demagoguing this issue and, and is creating real problems, which are not real problems, they're political problems. So what exactly should the European Union do right now? Well, it's important to recognize that a very substantial percentage of these people are refugees. That is to say, they're fleeing conflict and persecution. Um, yes, there's some economic migrants among them, but most um, at least have a right not to be sent back to persecution. And once they land on European soil, they actually have a right to have their asylum claim adjudicated. And if indeed they are found to be um, refugees, as most of them will be, they're entitled to stay. So what Europe needs to do is to stop treating the Mediterranean or, or the often dangerous land crossing, um, stop treating sort of drowning and death as a way of preserving its borders. It needs to find safe and legal routes for these people who really do need to flee, um, a way for them to get to Europe without risking their lives. And, um, you know, we've seen modest steps in that direction. If you look at sort of the way Europe has responded to the Mediterranean Sea crossing, um, when the Italians were in charge, they had something called Mara Nostrum, which very much focused on protecting people. Um, the European Union then took over about a year ago with Operation Triton and put a priority on preserving Europe's borders over protecting people until this last spring when a thousand people died in the course of one week, and then it changed. But I'm not sure if it's changed enough because even just this weekend, we've seen a number of drownings off the Libyan coast. Europe should be patrolling much more aggressively near the Mediterranean coast to try to rescue people as quickly as possible so they're not continuing to use drowning as a way of preserving Europe's So borders. what does the United States have to do with it? I mean, you have these massive conflicts that have roiled the globe. Um, do we have a responsibility here? Well, yes. If you look at you know, why people are fleeing, well, let's take the Syrians, who are the largest percentage. Um, in an ordinary war, you can get some degree of protection by moving away from the front lines. But in Syria, 
Assad is dropping barrel bombs um, in the middle of civilian neighborhoods that happen to be controlled by the opposition. There is no safe place to move in Syria if you're in opposition-held territory, which is why we have four million refugees from Syria today. So one very important thing to do is to go to the root causes of this, to try to put real pressure on Assad to stop barrel bombing civilians and to take comparable steps in the other major refugee-producing countries like Somalia, Eritrea, and Afghanistan. Um, th you know, let's not forget why we have this crisis. It's not that everybody woke up this morning and thought it'd be nice to move to Europe. These people are being forced out because of severe conflict and persecution. And do you see connections between what we're seeing in the United States? I mean, you have the um, Republican rhetoric of Donald Trump saying, build a wall, Mexicans are rapists, um, uh, all 11 million undocumented people should be deported. You have Chris Christie saying they should be treated like FedEx packages and tracked. What are the connections you see between what's happening in the United States and what's happening in Europe? Well, there are commonalities between the right wing in both Europe and the United States. And what this is really about is some sense that the, the migrants are, are somehow destroying American culture or European culture, that, that these societies cannot incorporate the, the changes that would result from welcoming in, you know, hundreds of thousands, or in some cases in the U.S., millions of people. Now, the United States, in fact, is just fine. Um, in fact, it's, it's been greatly enriched by the immigration. And it's not as if, you know, American culture is radically different today from what it was, you know, two or three decades ago. It's not as if American democracy is in jeopardy. But this is nonetheless an argument that the right wing likes to put forward, that, you know, the American way of life is in jeopardy. And you see very similar arguments in Europe, aggravated by the fact that so many of these asylum seekers and migrants are Muslims. And there's this terrifying fear in Europe that, that you know, largely Christian Europe is somehow going to be changed for the worse because a handful of, of, of Muslims are going to come in. And so there is this unfortunate right-wing racist commonality. humanitarian crisis of refugees, women and children, whole families, uh, a crisis that is getting increasingly acute every day. For months, people all over the world have been taken aback by the heart-rending images of what, sometime, what are sometimes called migrants, sometimes called refugees and asylum seekers. Hundreds of thousands of people fleeing conflicts in the Middle East and Africa, uh, coming by boat, by foot, by any way possible to try to get to safety in Europe seems like every day the pictures get more desperate. Uh, today, one very hard-to-look-at image um, is sh showing just how god-awful things have gotten. You have probably seen this today already. It led the news around the country today, but um, even if, whether or not you've already seen it, you may not want to look. It is graphic. I'm going to show it in three, two, one. This is the image. It shows the body of a small Syrian boy, a refugee who washed ashore in Turkey. Uh, his family's boat sank last night on its way to Greece. It's an absolutely terrible image. It's resonating around the world tonight, though. And 
alongside how terrible this crisis is, we are also seeing people being moved to try to help, with or without their governments. Uh, in Vienna this week, 20,000 people took to the streets to show their support for the refugees arriving on their doorstep. In Iceland, thousands of citizens have signed a petition calling on the Icelandic government to allow more refugees into that country. People have been offering up their own homes. Tonight in Hungary, some imaginative volunteers set up an outdoor screening of Tom and Jerry cartoons for some of the displaced kids there. This past weekend, German soccer fans unfurled big banners that said, Refugees Welcome. Train stations in Munich have been so overrun with donations that police officers had to tell people to stop bringing them. Every country is responding to this crisis differently, and in some places the reaction of the people is not at all the same as the reaction of their country's government. But one of the things that has been interesting to watch right now is that the government of Germany uh, is taking a welcoming and relatively organized stance amid this tide of people who are trying to get there. Germany has announced that it's on track to take in 800,000 refugees and asylum seekers. 800,000 this year. Contrast that with Britain, which is the second largest economy in Europe. Today, the British Prime Minister said taking in more refugees is not the answer. This difference, this very stark difference, playing out on the front cover of these two of these countries' major newspapers. On the left is the front cover of Germany's daily Bild. It shows two young refugees with the headline, We Help. On the right, in Britain, the Daily Express says, Migrants swarm to Britain. Swarm. Amid this huge human tide of sadness and need, why are these two big, important countries reacting so differently in Europe? And not incidentally, how about us? What's our role in this? Are we helping? Do we have plans to? How should we? Joining us now for the interview is David Miliband. He's the former British Foreign Secretary. He's now President and CEO of the International Rescue Committee. Uh, Mr. Secretary, it's a real honor to have you here. Thanks for your Thank time. Thank you very much. Good to be here. Um, how should we understand the difference in the German and British reactions? Obviously, they're both very close allies. The largest economy in Europe. And this question of what German leadership and German responsibility means in the modern world is a very big question in Germany. And here's a chance, after all the trauma of the Euro crisis, where Germany's been accused of dithering and being slow, here's a chance for Germany to show real humanitarian political okay. leadership on a scale that not just Britain but the US simply can't keep up with. When, when we look at these, these images and we look at the, the almost sort of, um, it's sort of hard to get your head around the scale of this and the fact that it is unrelenting now, this tide of people and the fact that people aren't just coming from one place, they're coming from so many different war-torn places. It feels like it is, it is breaking Europe and not in the sense that there are too many people coming, but that Europe's rules don't fit this problem and that the, the rules that were in place supposedly to deal with this sort of thing just don't seem to be fitting and now seem to be getting flouted. Well, there are two aspects of that that I would question. First of all, they're not coming from that many places. The International Rescue Committee, my organization, we have staff in Greece on the islands of Greece where people are arriving. Mm -hmm. Two-thirds of the refugees arriving in Europe are coming into these islands. More than 60% of them are from Syria. So the five-year Syria crisis, four and a half million refugees, most of them in the neighboring countries, Lebanon, Jordan, etc. That's the main source of refugee numbers, also Afghanistan uh, to some extent. Secondly, you said in your introduction, sometimes we call them migrants, sometimes we call them refugees. There's a huge difference. Right. And one of the most dangerous things, including in Britain, is the fact that the idea of a refugee, the status of someone who has a well-founded fear of persecution, which is the definition of a refugee in international law, 
that's being muddied, that's being diluted, it's being undermined in this talk of, well, migrants who choose to come for economic reasons. Right. And All so the headlines are about migrants as if this is just immigration, as if this is people moving in a, in a normal context without that. And it, it's really support. important to say to people, this isn't about being politically correct, it's about being correct that a refugee is fleeing persecution, an economic immigrant, I would prefer to say, rather than migrant, mm -hmm. is seeking a better life. It's not that one is good and one is bad, but they're different. And a refugee has rights in international law, rights to protection and responsibilities from governments that need to be upheld. And one of the fundamental challenges now is to ensure that the, the very notion of a refugee is not lost right. in the talk and the headlines about a migrant crisis. What about the United States? Obviously, the United States geographically is in a different position, particularly with regard to these uh, you know, people who are coming from Afghanistan, People are coming from Syria, making their way by land across Europe. But what about American leadership? Historically, America has been the leader of refugee resettlement. I don't want to throw too many figures at you, but if you, the, the, the record last year, 20 million refugees around the world. Uh, those who are resettled in richer countries, about 150,000 or so. The U.S. takes 70,000. But the record from Syria, I'm afraid, does not amount to leadership. The United States, since the Syria conflict began, has taken 1,234 Syrian refugees, so more or less 250 uh, a year. The State Department announced last week uh, a target of five to 8,000 in 2016. But that is way below the kind of leadership that's needed for America to play its historic role, never mind to compare with this German reaction of 800,000 asylum seekers and refugees, okay, it's, it's our responsibility, we'll take them. An Egyptian billionaire thinks that he might be able to single-handedly solve the incredibly serious Syrian refugee crisis. His name is Naguib Sawiris, and he wants to set up an island for them to flee to, rather than trying to make the extremely dangerous uh, journey to various uh, countries in the region, also EU countries, which they're often barred from. There have been a number of wrecks, resulting in literally thousands of deaths. He wants to set up a safe haven for them. He said this, Greece or Italy, sell me an island. I'll call its independence and host the migrants and provide jobs for them building their new country. Hmm. He said that an island off Greece or Italy could cost between $10 million and $100 million, but added that the main thing in investment is the infrastructure, of course. And he says that, of course, it's feasible. You have dozens of islands which are deserted and could accommodate hundreds of thousands of refugees. He has more details. But this is an interesting idea. It is, uh, I think, heartwarming to see a billionaire who wants to have a direct influence on people who are going through almost literal hell. So just earlier in the week, John and I were uh, talking about how the Gulf countries are not allowing any Syrians in, right? So all the guys are like, oh, our fellow Muslims, blah, 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 blah. No, 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 not here, not here, right? So now here's a presumably Muslim guy out of Egypt. Could, that I could don't be Coptic, know. but could there's Coptic, possible. Right? Uh, whoever he is, God bless his heart, right? Mm -hmm. uh, saying, hey, you know what? I am going to step up. So now, is it going to work? I'd, I'd be really surprised. I mean, I mean, but he's thinking outside the box, right? Is Greece or Italy going to sell you an island to put immigrants on? That seems unlikely, they have right? A lot of them, though. 
I hear you, but I, countries don't like to let go of land. Land, right. Yeah, that's like a big thing for a country, right? I mean, I theoretically, mean, if it was some sort of partnership with this Egyptian billionaire, they get the benefit of the positive PR of helping these people, something that they have been doing sort of somewhat reluctantly, um, without having to front the cost for the development of the island and potentially putting some of the risk off onto him. It could be a win-win, win-win-win, well, actually. Of course it could, but if you were talking about rational people instead of the territorial animals that we are, right? Yeah. So every once in a while, Greece and Turkey will get nearly into a war because there'll be like a one-foot-by-one-foot one island in the middle of the Mediterranean, and Greece will go put its flag on it, and Turkey will go put its flag on it, and then they'll bring the battleships and get ready to go, that's my one-foot island, right? So that's the mentality we're that's talking true. about. So. Greece, Italy, whoever, Turkey, hell no, right? Hey, can I take one of your islands? I pay you a lot of money. Well, unless the money was going to the politician. Yeah. Then maybe we got a deal to make. But outside of that, they'd bring the battleships. There's no way they're going to do that. This is, this is the consequence of war. This is a yes. real visual evidence of what war creates. It creates displacement. It creates misery. It creates death. It is the consequence of political leaders who say, I want boots on the ground. I want more war. I'll be the best at the military you've ever seen. We'll go in there. You are displacing innocent people. It's a humanity. It's a humane problem. We care more about a lost whale finding its way to the ocean than we do these people getting some shelter, some... Uh, uh, I mean, when you see that little boy wash up on the ocean today... I, I, I don't know if I've ever seen something so sad and heart-wrenching. It was just, it's just horrific, but it is a consequence. There's a connection between we've got to go over there and kick some fucking ass and what it does to the people who live there who are caught in the crossfire. Yeah. And, and, there, and when you couple that attitude with the global institutional failure of all these institutions that fail to take to to help and to 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 solve humanitarian crises, um, this is the world we get. I don't know. I don't know. I, so, I got real serious. What happened? Yeah, no, no but it, no, it, it but is serious. It's just so no, hard. It's true. It is heartbreaking. So, you know, when we were on the air, you know, now or a dozen years ago, right before the Iraq War, uh, when we were just on the radio, and we're saying, don't go into Iraq, it'll have consequences, it'll have consequences. <coughs> we had a president at the time who said, I don't do nuance, right? Mm -hmm. But that dead Syrian kid on the beach, that's nuance, okay? That's, that's mm -hmm. the consequences. Mm -hmm. Because we, we came in there like a bull in a china shop, we broke everything in the Middle East, right? we hit Iraq when we had no business in Iraq, they hadn't hit us. We came in there, we had no plan, right? We're like, oh, the Sunni and Shia don't like each other. Oh, my God, they're going to go to war. Oh, that war is going to spread to other countries. Oh, I don't know. I don't do nuance. I don't do nuance. And now we have Republican candidates saying, I don't know any of those people. I'll figure it out when I become president. But you don't figure it out. Instead, this is what happens. Now, and, and you're right again, Brian, about the animals. Like, So I care about the whale. I care about the lion. But Cecil, the lion, the whole country, the whole planet is weeping for this lion 2,300 people have died just trying to get out of Syria yeah. during this the, the refugee crisis, let alone the hundreds of thousands that died in Syria, let alone the hundreds of thousands that died in Iraq, right? Yeah. And, and we just go, ah, yeah, just bomb them, right? You know, who is they? Who are you bombing? And then what are the consequences of, of that? It doesn't mean, and then they simplify it to, well, don't you want to bomb ISIS? Don't you hate ISIS? 
yeah, I know, of course we hate ISIS. The question is, how do you attack it? And if it turns out you're, you know, you're going this way, now we're trying to figure out how, where do we put hundreds of thousands, where do we put millions of people? There's a million people in Lebanon that are Syrian refugees. That's a quarter of their population. Amazing, right? We talked about this yesterday. That would be 75 million people in America. If all of a sudden 75 million people came into America, could you imagine the Donald Trump-like reactions if that happened, right? In Turkey, there's 1.6 million Syrian refugees. These are the consequences. So now we got guys yeah. who are like, I don't know, do I buy an island? Do I start a whole new country? Then you'd have to have cops. You'd have to have jurisdictional right. issues. You'd have to have customs service. Then you'd have to keep other people out of that country, right? Ah. I mean, right? And it goes around and around. That's because we didn't think anything through. And then you wonder why people hate America, right? And idiots like Joe Scarborough will say things like, they hate us because they hate us. Literally... Literally dead children are washing up on the beaches. Yeah. That's so fucked up that, 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 that people who are crying out for more intervention or more militaristic attitude don't connect. And those who care about the unborn children of the world and are so, I mean, it, it's such a moral collapse yeah. on top of an institutional collapse, on top of, of a, there's a certain hopelessness in that. Uh, and I think it is so tragic. That little boy didn't ask to be born into that world. Where's someone defending that kid's life? You know, nowhere. Um, other than look at this horrific picture. What are we going to do about this immigrant crisis? Oh, gee, here we go again. And it's just, it's pretty fucking sad. I'll be the lumberjack and you will be the tree. Chasing rabbits and you know you've gone too far. Here at Best of the Left, we know that it's not enough just to stay informed. You need to get active if you actually want to change the world for the better. That's why we promote great activism opportunities every chance we get. Also, I can only reach so many people on my own, but with your help, we can extend that reach. The episode show notes are most likely available on the device you're using to listen right now, and if they're not, you can see them on the website. Simply click the title of any segment you want to share and then easily post it to your social networks or send it directly to friends. You joining these actions and helping amplify the show to get even more people involved is critical to our mission to change the world for the better. Get started right now in the show notes on the device you're using or visit the website from any device at bestoftheleft.com. I'll be the forest and you will be the dead tree. Word choice is by no means the only way the media have skewed our understanding of the current humanitarian crisis. Repeated focus on some aspects of the human displacement at the expense of others and some wrong basic assumptions underlying reporting have perpetuated a variety of myths and misunderstandings. Doug Saunders, international affairs columnist for Canada's The Globe and Mail, says that false narratives about migration to Europe not only cloud our understanding, they also have dangerous implications for asylum seekers themselves. One major myth, that the West is bearing the brunt of the current crisis. There's, I think, an image that Europe is being flooded. These countries, Syria, Afghanistan, Iraq, are emptying themselves of people and that they're all coming to the West. A stream of migrants from the Middle East flooding into the European nations that are struggling to keep up with the influx. This human tide of desperation is now cresting across the borders of Europe. 
In fact, the proportion who are looking to go to Europe or North America are minuscule. The vast majority of people forced to leave their homes by the Syrian conflict that's been going on since 2011 are displaced within Syria and will never leave Syria. More than twice the number of people who are refugees are the people who are so-called internally displaced persons. And of the 4 million or so people who do have to leave the country, almost all of them are just outside the borders of Syria, in absolutely huge camps of hundreds of thousands of people in Turkey, in Jordan, in Lebanon. Then you have a tiny group, fewer than 10% of the total population, who do seek international refuge. Those don't tend to be the people who were in the camps. It's not as if the hundreds of thousands of people in the refugee camps are then getting on boats across the Mediterranean. It tends to be a very different group of people who have the economic means to pay $3,000 per person to make the boat or foot crossing. It's in the hundreds of thousands. It is one of the largest groups of international refugees that we've seen in recent decades. But generally speaking, the West is only taking a tiny, tiny sample. It's not as if the entire population of Syria is trying to move to the West. Nor is it necessarily that once finding refuge either in Turkey or in Jordan or in Germany, that all of these people intend to stay there indefinitely. I'm really curious to see how this migrant picture uh, changes the, the long-term employment situation in many of these countries. And Merkel said uh, just a, a few days ago, this will change Germany permanently. Refugees, and particularly these refugees, don't generally tend to become permanent immigrants. A very large plurality and probably majority of these people are going to return to Syria. They tend to be people who are not fleeing poverty. They're fleeing a disruption of their lives caused by war. They have property. They often have small businesses and investments and opportunities back in the region. Assuming the war does not go on for decades and decades and decades, a large proportion will return. Of the 2.2 million Bosnians who fled their country during that conflict in the 1990s, by some measures, all but about 300,000 ended up returning. So we have to keep in mind that it's an emergency crisis, probably temporary. Remember, the wars in Serbia and Croatia and Bosnia and Kosovo seemed to be interminable as well. And it did eventually end up dying down and people moved back. So people prefer to move back and forth when they have the opportunity. They only become permanent when those opportunities to move back and forth are blocked. We have come away with the notion that this exodus is taking place largely at sea. This is the extraordinary scene every morning, boat after boat of migrants and refugees coming ashore. These ones having rowed all the way from Turkey. This is one of three boats, and as you can see, this is absolutely crammed. It's meant to hold 15 people. There must be 40 on this one. It's not just happening at sea, and there are periods when there are more people coming over by means other than sea. In 2015, we have the explosion of this foot route across the Western Balkans and across Greece and Hungary and so on, a couple different foot routes, which also involve smugglers, which at least during some months of this year have exceeded all the boat routes combined in numbers. And when you talk to officials in countries like Germany, they say that the people arriving by foot across the Balkans are a bigger concern for them now than the people coming by boat from Libya across to the islands off of Italy. Some countries, notably the reactionary government of Hungary, have put every impediment in place that they can, including walls, to keep migrants from settling there or even passing through on their way to Western Europe. 
Hungary is still erecting a fence along its border and has vowed to take tougher measures by mid-September. So you have people like David Cameron saying, we'll send the economic migrants back home. Now we have uh, countries like Macedonia putting up walls, Hungary putting up walls to keep them out. Does that reduce the overall flow of refugees? We've generally seen that attempts to physically block or turn back immigrants have not reduced the numbers. They've increased the danger. The most egregious example of that we saw was on the Mediterranean boat crossing route, where until 2014, the European Union had had a program run by the Italian government called Mare Nostrum, which was designed to rescue people on these dangerous boats. And rescue by nature it meant taking them to the shores of Europe and processing them. And this became controversial. And they said, instead of rescuing them and bringing them to Europe, let's try to send them back. What ended up happening was that the number of migrants crossing didn't decrease. In fact, you actually saw a slight increase in the number of people crossing this way. But what did increase was the number of people dying at sea, which in fact increased 50-fold. These are people who put a big family investment into this or taking a big risk and simply trying to physically block them at the end of the journey is not only probably not going to work, but could end up costing a lot of lives. Hungary is particularly being unfriendly about this. And it's a particularly dark irony given that the first big wave of non-Western refugees in the post-war period were the Hungarians. And many Western countries like the United States and Canada settled hundreds of thousands of people fleeing Hungary as refugees. And that memory has almost been lost by the current government of Hungary. As you've looked at the coverage to date, is there any particular repeated error that just simply makes you wince? It's the notion that we're going to be flooded by these people and that they're going to overwhelm us. We've seen so many groups come into the West before who have been controversial. We've said they're not going to assimilate, that we can't handle them, and we've handled them just fine. The Vietnamese, many people felt that either they were going to contain communist insurgents or that they were, by nature, unassimilable. Nevertheless, they settled fine. The refugees from Bosnia and Kosovo in the 1990s, they were Muslim. They were from what seemed to be an alien civilization to many people. They were settled quickly, and they became an uncontroversial group of people in the cities and regions where they settled. But still, we seem to be returning in many countries and many people's voices to a view that we thought had died out, which is that refugees are a threat, that they're going to contain dangerous people. There are fears that jihadists could be hidden among the migrants. How many boat people and others who seem to be economically motivated are actually terrorists? The Prime Minister of Hungary saying there's a clear link between migrants heading to Europe and rising, the rising terror threat there. I mean, keep in mind, the Syrians are mostly fleeing the group known as Islamic State or ISIS. Yet still, we see headlines that they're going to contain large numbers of terrorists and extremists and, and all this sort of thing. Remember, this is a group of people whose numbers are dwarfed by our general immigration numbers anyway, and who are not going to last forever. So... We need to step back and say, okay, we've done this before. It's worked out fine. This is not going to be permanent. It's not going to be overwhelming. Let's help these people and let them get back on their feet. They can benefit our countries. We can help theirs. And it'll be over at a certain point. If you got a problem, don't care what it is. If you need a hand, I can assure you this. 
Here we're joined by Sarab al-Shishakli, a Syrian-American community organizer. Uh, he recently wrote a piece for The Guardian, headlined, The U.S. Must Do More to Help Syria. Step one, let more refugees settle here. He's currently president of the Network of Arab-American Professionals. Welcome to Democracy Now! Uh, following me. up on what Philippe Legrain is saying mm. about what should happen in the United States, I mean, I think a lot of people may be seeing this as a European issue. What do you see it as? No, I mean, we pride ourselves in America as being the leaders of refugee resettlement, yet, as our previous guest has said, only 1,500 Syrians have been allowed to entry into this country for resettlement. This is 1,500 over the course of four-plus years. Now, if you look at that, that's a, that's a terribly tragic number um, and shows how ineffective American policy has been regarding refugees. One thing to note, the quota this year for allowance of refugees from all over the world into the United States is about 70,000. And to look at less than 1,500 allowed in for the biggest humanitarian catastrophe is problematic, to say the least. And what do you, uh, how do you think... Uh those Americans who are concerned can put the pressure on now on our lawmakers to change those, uh, basically change those quotas and on the White House to, to take action. Sure. There's a petition going around, for example, that has in a few days uh, gained over 50,000 signatories, a White House petition, that is. But I think even more so, just jumping on this swell of energy and emotion related to the tragic losses that we've seen over the past week and a half, um, everyone in America can do something to reach out to their elected reps to push this agenda forward. Um, as your previous guest said, this is a drop in the bucket. It's not necessarily something that will um, impact jobs in America, for example. You know, a lot of the concerns that are raised by the far right here um, are really null and void when it comes to refugee resettlement. We all know this. Um, so we can do more as a nation to help those in need. Especially and you're organizing uh, a public event uh, this weekend? Yes, we are. This Saturday in Union Square, there will be a rally, Welcome Refugees Rally. And obviously, we're focused on the Syrian crisis and the Syrian catastrophe. However, this is Welcome Refugees across all aspects of life wherever they are from. And what the U.S. is doing in Syria now? Pardon me? What the U.S. is doing in Syria right now? Yeah, I mean, what the U.S. is doing in Syria, I mean, U.S. has had a four-plus-year ineffective policy in Syria. But the second piece, part of the piece in The Guardian, I think, is to get at the root of this issue. And the biggest problem that we have in Syria, from a Syrian perspective, is who are the overwhelming perpetrators of violence that are driving these refugees out. And overwhelmingly, we know and we find that 85 to 90 percent of all civilians killed are killed by the Assad regime. And we know that the overwhelming driver of fear of, uh, uh, di of displacement is this regime that has waged a war for four plus years on their own people. Is it clear who are bombing um, those in Syria? How do Syrians on the ground perceive it? Sure. Well, there's two forces that control that are in the sky. Let's put it like that. That are that are waging war from above. Uh, first and foremost, the United States for a year now has controlled the skies over Syria. So much debate is being made over a no-fly zone, etc. But the United States controls Syrian airspace. Um, what's even more perplexing is that with that control, they've allowed the Assad regime to utilize their helicopters and air force to bombard and kill tens of thousands of Syrians from the sky. So it begs the question, not about no-fly zone or this, but why the United States, which is the overwhelming broker of power in the sky over Syria, is allowing so many Syrians to die. And uh, I you, there's been so much emphasis now on uh, the Europe having to contend with this huge migrate, uh, refugee crisis, but yet there are countries uh, in the Middle East now that have been dealing with this for years at a much bigger level. I'm thinking of Lebanon and Jordan and Turkey, which have hundreds of 
thousands, millions of, uh, millions of, of, yeah. uh, of refugees that have, uh, have uh, escaped into their countries. You talk about the relative lack of attention to those. Sure. I mean, literally half of Syria's population is displaced. Four plus million refugees who have fled outside the country and about eight million people inside the country. Even those refugees that we see on those boats today, they are fleeing for the second, third time in their lives. Uh, the, the, the picture we saw of that poor child drowned on the beach. He, his father initially lived in Damascus, was detained by the regime and had to flee Damascus at first time as a refugee with his family. He went back into Syria to Kobani and then again had to flee again. So you see this is not, not a, a new issue. It's four-plus years of dispossession and displacement. The announcement from the White House today that two doors down from Iran, the United States will start opening our doors significantly wider to the refugee families who are running for their lives from the hell that is year five of Syria's endless civil war. What the White House announced today is a significant increase. Fiscal year ends this month, so as of the end of this fiscal year, as of the end of this month, the United States will have taken in about 1,500 Syrian refugees over the course of this past year. What the White House announced today is that next year they want to go from 1,500 to 10,000 refugees from Syria. And that is a significant increase from what we were doing before, but in context, it's not that much. Since this current right crisis started with all these refugee families risking their lives by the thousands to try to get themselves somewhere safe... Just look at the Catholic Church. Pope Francis has said that 120,000 Catholic parishes all over Europe should each take in at least one refugee family. So just the Catholic Church as an institution, they're saying they'll take in 120,000 families. The whole United States as a country is only talking about taking in 10,000 individuals. The country of Germany, since this latest crisis started, they've pledged to take in a half million refugees per year. In context, just in terms of their overall population, half a million people may sound like a lot, but proportionally, a half million people brought in as refugees would represent 0.62% of Germany's population. If we were being welcoming on the same scale as our ally Germany, if we were also welcoming in 0.62% of our population, that would mean that we were offering to take in roughly 2 million people into our country. Not 10,000, but 2 million, just to keep pace with what Germany has offered to do. incredibly disturbing series of images, one of which we are about to show you, are galvanizing a call to action among the citizens of Europe. The photos show the body of a three-year-old child, a refugee from Syria, washed up on a beach in Turkey. The boy, along with his five-year-old brother, one of dozens who died when their boats capsized, desperately trying to reach Europe. 
the horrifying image spurring new calls for European leaders to take action as Europe faces its biggest refugee crisis since World War II. Hundreds of thousands of people from Syria, from Iraq, from Afghanistan, from Libya, Eritrea, and Nigeria are fleeing war and poverty. And European countries are struggling to respond. Right now, more than 2,000 migrants and refugees who are trying to get to Germany are trapped at a Hungarian train station thanks to asylum rules. Germany is preparing to take 800,000 refugees, is urging other countries to do their part. In Iceland, over 11,000 people are offering up to open their homes to refugees. In the U.S., the exceptional nation, the indispensable nation, has only taken in a thousand Syrian refugees so far and will take another 8,000 next year. That is 100 times less than the number of refugees that Germany, a country a fraction of the size of the U.S., will take in this year. You know, anytime war is on the table, you hear a great number of prominent political and media voices in America arguing that if you actually care about the people of the Middle East, you must support military action. But if those lives truly matter to us, as they should, there's something very straightforward we can do that doesn't involve dropping a single bomb or sending a single troop. We can take in tens, even hundreds of thousands into this large, wealthy country, and every single person running for president right now should be forced to answer why we shouldn't. You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Not that you're informed and angry. Here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, America welcomes Syrian refugees. So far, the United States has taken in 1,500 Syrian refugees with a promise from the Obama administration to accept another 10,000 next year. But we're a country of over 300 million people and 3.8 million square miles. Surely we can do better than that. While the Republican Party would like us to think our country is broke, the federal budget is actually a matter of priorities and willingness to tax the wealthy. In 2015, we spent $609 billion on the military, which doesn't even include care for veterans. Surely some of that would be better spent caring for those displaced by violence and extreme poverty than perpetuating those conditions through acts of war. The Nation magazine, along with MoveOn.org, are calling for the government to listen to international aid organizations and accept at least 65,000 Syrian refugees over the next year. As we've heard today, Germany is taking in 800,000 refugees, a move Oxford Economics says could create an economic boost equivalent to a quarter's decent growth. The London School of Economics, hardly a bastion of liberal thought, found that immigration in Britain hadn't increased unemployment or reduced wages. It's entirely possible that taking in refugees could not only be a moral good, but also have a benefit to our country and economy. It sounds like a win-win. Their petition, which is on the front page of MoveOn.org's website and the top of the Nation.com's Take Action tab, reminds recipients in Congress and the White House that our invasion of Iraq and 
Iran's decision to funnel weapons into the region, along with a failure to find diplomatic solutions, have fueled the violence that is now displacing people. We can't heal the damage we've done, but we can accept responsibility and save some lives. In addition to signing the petition, you can participate in MoveOn's America Welcomes campaign by taking a photo of yourself or a group with a sign welcoming refugees. Photos are posted at americawelcomes.us and at hashtag americawelcomes on Instagram and Twitter. Campaigns like this not only affect policy, but push national media away from nativist narratives fueled by the right wing. The segment notes include all of the links to this information, as well as additional resources, and as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the Activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. If humanitarian outreach matters to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about America Welcomes via social media so that others in your network can participate too. Can you stand up and be counted as a body in a crowd? Put your name on a petition with your signature so proud. Can you raise your voice so loud as you stand with head on bowed, weather beating on your brow, demanding answers here and now? Cause that's how you make a difference in this fickle world of change. At the same time that President Obama is considering lifting the number of refugees we would take into the United States, Fox News is rolling out a network-wide campaign to paint those refugees as potential terrorists. You know, it was a couple of months ago that ISIS threatened to send a half a million migrants to Europe as a psychological weapon which means there could be bad guys in there with the good guys as well. A new video surfaces online showing why some are worried Europe is opening its doors to potential terrorists. And while this crisis is happening overseas, some are saying it poses a potential threat to the United States. Many of them are Muslims coming from Muslim countries. Should we really be opening our doors at the risk of letting in terrorists? Taking Islamic refugees would be suicide. They're going to be radicalized. A lot of the people that I've been watching on television, it's men. There aren't that many women, relatively speaking. Men. Syrian men are coming. To absorb 65,000 or more Islamic refugees into the country? And it's almost 100 Men. So I can't support a policy that would provide a jihadist pipeline into the United States. What could possibly go wrong with poor, starving, Muslim, alienated men? So now we have one of the biggest mass migrations in the history of the world, which is overwhelming and will allow terrorists entry into almost every Western country. I'm sure many of them are very good people. But do you think some radicals might be mixed in with them? Is that a fear that we should take seriously? But does it not leave an opening for terrorists, those to blend in inside them to, to, through a pipeline uh, to either get to, the Europe, get to Europe or the United States? They are going to be easily radicalized. Uh, I don't think it should be done here. Right? But number one, it's a national security issue. It oh, would be right. suicide. <laughs> Those are reportedly Muslim refugees on a train in Europe chanting Allah Akbar or God is great. Now, to be clear, we're not saying that any of those people are terrorists or in any way affiliated with a terror group, but it does highlight just how many of these refugees who are fleeing violence in Iraq and Syria are Muslim. They're not saying they're terrorists. They're not saying it at all. Great, they just you. want to make you piss your pants as you sit watching Fox News. <laughs> they, the, the graphics there say terrifying chant. So, again... 
and they tra even translated it. Uh, Allah Akbar means in Arabic, God is great. Yeah. So, can you imagine if liberals here in this country called uh, a Christian chanting, God, God is great, or hallelujah, or just terrifying chant. Yeah, when Kim Davis and Huckabee <laughs> had their hands in the air as they were looking at Jesus' feet, praise, I guess. Praise Jesus. Terrifying, praise Jesus. terrifying praise, chant. Praise terrifying Jesus. ritual. Praise well, I, Jesus. I think it's more like the equivalent of like if someone just pulled you out from drowning, you were like, thank God. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's, like, exactly. that's all it is. That's, that's all I, it is. Yeah, and, and you know what they have? They should be thanking God. Like, they're leaving a place that they were willing to risk their lives to leave because they thought death, death, starvation, misery was imminent, and they're, they get to go to Europe now. And so they're saying, Allah Akbar. Yeah, they, they're saying Allah Akbar because they're running from ISIS, <laughs> and they're running yeah. from Bashar Assad backed by the Iranians. Right. We, <laughs> right? Like, like, so they're like, thank God we left those guys yeah. behind, right? And, yeah. and, and, so, and then the other graphic they had there was inbound terrorists. We're not saying anything. We're just asking a question. Are all these Muslims inbound terrorists? I didn't say anything against Muslims. I'm just saying they're male. They're Muslim. Mm -hmm. I didn't say Chanting. a word. And, you, and John, you pointed this out, how, how uh, Hannity quoted Trump to Trump. I'm sure some of them are okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he really wants to be yeah. liked by the guy. But we, we were talking uh, on Wednesday, Ann and I were talking about the, the different ways that humans have trained themselves to, to not care about groups of people. I mean, the fact that they just say, oh, Islamic refugees, well, of course we shouldn't care about them. They're Islamic refugees. And, oh, there could be terrorists. Look, if we bring in 65,000, which, by the way, that's like the sheer number of refugees we take in, not from Syria, uh, there probably will be a terrorist or two or people who will be radicalized at some point. That does not exempt ourselves from the, 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 the responsibility that we have as humans, as people who share a species with the people in those little boats, to help them out. And, and to Eric Bowling, who's saying, you know, what, what could possibly happen if you have poor, sick people, men, they're going to be radicalized. Here's how they might be radicalized a little bit better, is if they don't get in here and they have to go back to fucking Syria. And they're even poorer and even more starving. And the only people that might be able to feed them are ISIS or also, other radical groups. I don't know how I just, I mean, what got me in the middle of his thing is we're going to take poor, starving. I'm like, Jesus, they're starving. We should help them. Yeah, what like, he said like, was yeah. literally what is inscribed in front of the, the Statue of Liberty. They're starving and we can help them. I, I actually think we should bring more of them here instead of Europe. Mm -hmm. so, What's the, uh, so you know, then they might, guys, that's a crazy idiot, because then they might be grateful to us instead of really pissed yeah, at us. Yeah, how do we mean, feed them and clothe <laughs> them and have them realize, oh shit, fucking Islamic radicalists, they, they killed my family and they sent me running. The U.S. helped my family. Yeah, so what's the, how many are we going to take? Many, he said he wanted to raise the total 60, number. 60,000 or something. If that's 65, he wants to raise it to 70. But again, this is not just from no, no, Syria. This we, is from we, we already take 65. He's just proposing yes. to take 5,000 more. But that's from, it. Yeah. From, out, of, out of hundreds of thousands, in fact, millions. But, hold on, hold on, hold on. Yeah, but in a country of, what is this? We got 10,000 people in this country? That's a lot. <laughs> so, but the 65,000 we take now, that's refugees from around the world around that the world. we always take. Willingness. Yes. Every yes. year we're willing yeah. to take sixty-five thousand. Yeah. He's saying take seven thousand, take five thousand more because of this massive influx. That's of right. Yeah, and to give you again context, Lebanon uh, took a million refugees, and that's a quarter of their population. We have over three hundred million people here. We're talking about five thousand extra people, and all the refugees are possible problems. By the way, let's, these are the same guys that say never forget. But remember, we also turned down refugees in another crisis a long time ago. Yeah, we were I worried. Don't remember that? Yeah, no, yeah, that's what right. That? Oh well, we forgot, huh? That's and, weird. And 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 by the way, to just, I mean, I don't really like this argument much, but I'm going to make it anyway. Because was that Andrea Tantaros in that? Yeah. 
you know, her, she's just the way she's like, so we're going to take 70,000 Islamic refugees? Just substitute any other religion there and just how hideous that sounds. You know, we're going to take 70,000 Jewish refugees, 70,000 Christian refugees? Come on, you guys would be, everybody yeah. would be outraged. And, and, and uh, these are the people, I'm sorry, man, but like, who do you think ISIS is killing? Yeah. They're killing that. That's those they're, guys. They're killing them. That's yeah. why they're running. Yeah. The that's only reason they're not dead is because they left. And then finally, Sylvia Longmire made a, a good point, ironically, on Fox News, as they're spitting out all Islamic refugees, and there's a pipeline. Uh, she was an expert that they brought on, probably apparently accidentally, and she said, "You know, if ISIS wants to send people here, they have a lot of money. You could just buy a plane ticket. The way that most terrorists come over is." Through planes, or if they're going to Europe, they just take a train, uh, and they have the money to manufacture papers. Or oftentimes, they get someone with no criminal record. It's super easy for them to come in. And then the Fox host is like, "Yeah, what about the poorest Mexican border?" Right? They're like, "No, they usually they just drive in from Canada because that's much easier, right?" Mm -hmm. So these are the people who are poor and don't have the ability to do any of that stuff. So if ISIS wanted to send people in, just fly them in, right? It's it's usually much easier. You in order to get accepted as a refugee, you have to go through an enormous yeah. bureaucratic process. It's almost the hardest way to get here. You think ISIS is going to put them in a truck where the half of them are going to die from? It's, it's ISIS has a lot of money. They have oil money. <laughs> they don't need to do any of this. These guys are knuckleheads. And what would they do? They want Fortress America. They want to build gigantic walls and and make sure nobody comes from it. But I'll tell you what, they might have been right. Maybe if we had done this decades ago, we wouldn't have let one of these sons of bitch Syrian refugees in here who wound up being Steve Jobs' dad. Yeah. Oh, oops. Yeah. <laughs> right. And that's one of my favorite facts. So Steve Jobs' dad is Syrian. They love Apple. They're like, number one company in the world, number one company, we're number one, America's number one. How do we get to be number one? Because we let other people in who turned out to be a great benefit and made this country great. Yeah. He was raised by white people, just to be clear. <laughs> yeah. Melting pot. Yeah. Melting pot. We all help. I just love the idea of, like, the boat of the Syrian refugees. Like, after weeks, they're starving. They have no water. They finally hit the shore. And Jesus just puts his foot in it and just pushes it back in the water. <laughs> That's their, their Christianity. Hello, Jay. This is V from Western New York. I've been re-listening to uh, your episode 947 a lot lately, um, particularly because the rawness of it really catches me. The fact that now the progressive movement is dealing with their own conservative element, or at least struggling to deal with their own conservative element, has really prompted me to think. There's a point that I'm, I'm quite surprised I have, I've heard nobody make in discussing what has been happening around the progressive uh, schism about racism, really, um, especially as it relates to Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders is often described as an economic populist. Now, this is an interesting term that goes back quite some time, but... Specifically, its origins comes from the populist movement, which was 
of course, in full swing at the end of the 1800s. Particularly, it uh, got an incredible breath of new life after the 1892, might have been 1891, Great Depression. And I'm talking about it was a Great Depression on scale. Actually, I think it might have been slightly larger than the Great Depression, which we all know about in, of course, the 1930s. The interesting aspect when it comes to race about the economic populists of that day was this. During the exact same time that white people were crying for economic justice for themselves, they were stripping economic and social and political rights from black people at that same exact time. I bring this up because currently there's the crisis which a lot of people are facing and looking at is focused primarily around black people having their rights taken away. There is an economic crisis in this country only because white people have started to feel it. The economic crises, of course, for black people have been going on for quite some time. And particularly when we talk about the housing problems, black people have been feeling the housing crunch since 2006 really late 2005. So when we talk about economic populism, we have to remember the origins of economic populism always have race as a factor. Economic populism was not built for black people. It was built for white people. I would like to issue a challenge to you and to your listeners, I suppose. One, I would really encourage you to um, produce a podcast, an episode, maybe two or three, whatever you choose on economic populism, particularly a sister. And I would definitely ask that your listeners who want to get involved find good articles about that and read them. And maybe you can put together a episode comp- uh, comprised of their reading. This is something truthfully, if we want, if you, if I, if everybody wants to deal with this, they're going to have to really do soul searching and dive deep into those those disgusting waters of American history. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to speak to you and your listeners. Keep up the good work. Peace. Hey, Jay Ryan from Phoenix again. Thanks for the response and the uh, voicemail. Uh, it was good uh feedback and uh yeah i'm a little familiar with uh the advances and the ability to measure happiness and i think it's a great comparison especially when the united states tries to compare itself to say finland or some other scandinavian countries who often rank pretty high in happiness and really low in misery and so having scientific ways to measure our our outcomes and their outcomes uh, along the lines of happiness and misery i think are uh very in uh informative comparisons and so yeah uh then taking a close look at uh the the difference in policies can be uh an interesting conversation but um really the reason i wanted to respond back and thank you for the response is because you have a topic that i'm very passionate about which is the use of urban space and the space in our cities this would be by far what i consider to be one of the least understood and most um uh taken advantage or 
efficient use of a limited resource. Uh, it's a natural resource that's very much in limited supply. Space within cities. The more space that we deny uh, efficient use of, the more space that cities will take up and the more wilderness that we lose. So urban growth boundaries and everything that uh, people in Portland are pretty familiar with um, and very few other examples in the United States. Um, they understand uh, the uh, need to preserve natural wilderness and to keep uh, the urban sprawl from continuing to spread into uh, our natural habitats and our natural ecosystems and ecosystem services that are so important for our life and sustainability. But that one example of you know public transit and dedicating uh, adequate space and, and really taking advantage of designing for the usefulness and the experience of people on those uh, buses is a really important aspect to think about in, in terms of uh, space all across urbanism than you can think of in terms of, well, if we stop uh, taking advantage of our side yards, which nobody uses other than their dog poop or whatever, their homes, and, and start thinking in terms of how much uh, land does a typical house in the suburbs really need and try to contract on some of those uh, uses, and then we actually bring things together in uh, closer proximity. and. You sure like going from an 8,000 square foot lot to a 5,000 square foot lot doesn't sound like much, but you know, you multiply that by 400 homes in a subdivision, all of a sudden you have a lot more space, and uh, or every house is a little closer to some kind of commercial services, and a neighborhood becomes more walkable and things of that nature. And you want to try to incorporate open space to connect these uh, different types of uses and uh, have fewer trips by car, and hopefully, the uh, those houses are also closer to a public transit line and you know too often in American cities we just uh, don't think in terms of where our bus stations bus stops should go or uh, how close they are to residences uh, we have horrible ways of, of measuring levels of service for transportation that only count for a single car vehicles is how many cars can we get through an intersection. We don't think about how many people we get through an intersection. And so multimodal level of service is something that's coming about and uh, is a better measure for how efficient people get from A to B. And so there's some, some good stuff happening out there in the world of uh, urbanism and planning for better urbanism. So I want to help people promote, I want to promote those things and, and help people understand just how important those uh, aspects are and the limited resources of urban space. And I think that you did a great job of bringing an example to the table. And I would just hope that take that concept and try to apply it to many aspects of city life and uh, there's a million examples of places where we just take it take it for granted. So, thanks, Jay. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Kitty Klebusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can either record a message on the voice memo app of your phone and email it to me, j at bestofleft.com, or leave a voicemail at 202-999-3991. So today I'm, I'm just going to add a little something that, frankly, many others have, have said before about this refugee crisis, but it's 
it relates to another idea that I've been kicking around lately. And that idea has to do with society and culture and its relationship with government and policies and the way these two forces influence each other. So like in a democratic society, the government is supposed to reflect society, right? Like that's the idea. But what I don't think we recognize often enough is that society ends up reflecting government in major ways as well. So put simply, like a government implements policies because the people think it's a good policy, but after a while of that policy being in place, the influence starts to shift in the other direction. People begin to assume that a policy is good simply because it is there. So there are many examples of this, but what has been said many times before about this refugee crisis is that we as people need to be able to get past our focus on these political borders that we have drawn around the world. In one sense, yes, you know, the borders we have drawn are real and they are very consequential, but in another sense, they aren't real at all. You know, we made them up and they have no power beyond the power we give them. You know, socially and culturally, we decided that limiting immigration over our national borders was a good thing. And so those policies have been put in place. Um, you know, but it wasn't always that way. It's, you know, in America anyways, our immigration policy used to be far more lax than it is now. And I think that having tightened those policies only reinforces the idea that they need to be tightened. And so then when you run into a problem like a refugee crisis, not only are your laws not set up to appropriately deal with refugees, but our culture is also not ready for it. You know, we've been living behind immigration laws that are like invisible walls for so long that we've become convinced that we need those walls there to protect us from danger. But if we have these laws in place and people are still afraid of immigrants, then I guess the only reasonable thing to do is to build real walls to protect us. And then we'll really feel safe except we won't at all. After a while, it'll become ingrained in us that we live behind these real walls on our borders and that they are there to protect us. And so we will assume that we must need those walls there, which can only mean one thing, which is that whatever's on the other side of that wall is really fucking scary. And so we'd better hunker down even further, pass even more restrictive laws, build stronger walls. Only then can we feel safe. So we pass strict laws and some people say we need to build walls all because we're terrified, thinking that passing stricter laws and building bigger walls will stop us from being terrified. Unbeknownst to any of them, it turns out it actually ratchets up the terror. So we, we terrify and victimize ourselves with these kinds of policies, all the while not doing our parts, doing the things in the world that would actually make it a safer place, like helping those in need in a time of crisis. If you want to share your thoughts on this or anything else, the number again, 202-999-3991. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash left. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music you used in this and every episode. All that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway and outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame How we get so trained We can't see past our Sad stories and wonder what we're missing
matter what we're doing.